Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, New Books Network. This is one of your hosts, Francis, and I have with me Judith Lockhead, Edward, Eduardo Mendieta, and Steve Smith, editors of Sound and Affect, Voice, Music, and World. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I first wanted to ask you guys how you conceived of this book and how you came together to write it or edit it. Uh, it goes back a number of years. Uh, I think it was 2014. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, actually, Steve and I walked over to Eduardo's office when he was on faculty at Stony Brook, and we said we want to do something with philosophy department. And uh, so we talked, and he said we should do something on sound and affect. And then we put on a conference that was very successful, had people coming from basically all over the United States and maybe some international. I can't remember exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have Brazil. Yeah. So we put on the conference and then uh, we decided that it would be good to uh, get an edited collection from, we couldn't include all of the, the papers in the conference. Uh, but we chose some that we thought would work well together. That would have some diversity of of, of uh, disciplinary uh, connections. Uh, so both philosophy, um, kind of traditional musicological studies, ethnomusicology, uh, and some that were kind of more music theoretical, and both historical and present. And so we pitched that to the University of Chicago Press, and they were uh, positive about it. And so it 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 went forward. It took a little bit longer than we wanted it to take to get to finish form for various reasons, the pandemic being one of them. But that that was the idea: is to kind of explore the how this new uh, so-called turn to affect intersected with with music studies and sound studies. 
I don't know if you guys want to add something else to that. Yeah, may, may I? Um, so Judith cap captured the the uh, uh, material dimension of putting together a conference and then a volume. But we thought um, that we could make an intervention today in um, how we think about our social existence or sociality that is so uh, flooded by sound. And we wanted to understand the relationship between music, sound, and affect. Because when you're blue, you want to hear the blues. And when you are in a funky mood, you want to get the funk. And so we wanted to understand the intersection of different disciplines getting us to understand this relationship between sound, affect, and, and music. And, and so we had incredible conversations. We wrote many drafts. Um, and I, I just love this book because it brings uh, several disciplines uh, together. So I'm very proud of the work we did together. And it took a while, uh, as you just said, because of the pandemic and also because um, we were managing so many authors. Um, and, and so, the, the, yeah, so that gives you a sense. Totally. But yes, go ahead, uh, Steve. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess one, I, I, I think, I think Judith and Eduardo have spoken to, yeah, what the book is doing and sort of how it intervenes um, in, uh, disciplinary intellectual spaces uh, beautifully. Um, I think it's all I'd add is just the, the conference itself was lots of fun. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that it gathered together people from um, a lot of different places and a lot of different disciplines too. Um, music theory, musicology, ethnomusicology, philosophy, media studies. So, um, there were really rich, fun conversations at the event. It was sort of overloaded, you know, in a good way. Um, <laughs> the uh, 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 dinner party at the end was just a total blast. Um, and I think something of that comes out in the book too, right? You have a lot of different ways of thinking that are just sort of um, oh, piled together in this space where they're kind of jostling with one another, but uh, in a way that's, I think, super productive and kind of exciting. So getting into the content of the book, in the introduction, you focus on four historical moments, starting with Plato and Aristotle and taking us to contemporary sound studies. How are you conceiving of musical shifts throughout these moments? Okay. Can I take a stab at that first? Yeah, yeah go for it. So um, in the preface, um, in order to int introduce the introduction, we uh, coined a term, uh, somatic affective regimes. Somatic affective, uh, I'm sorry, sonic affective regimes. And what we wanted to grasp in our time, to grasp in sound our time, to paraphrase Hegel, was the idea that different historical periods create different sonic affective states. And, and so that's why 
we coined this term and then set out to give a history of the ways in which throughout it, beginning with Plato and Aristotle, as you just pointed out, there's a thinking of the relationship between sound, voice, music, rhythm, um, prosody, as you know, I would say, and then how we feel. And so every epoch has a sound and every sound creates a certain mood that orients us um, in the way we relate to each other. Um, and we want to capture that. We wanted to think about what it means to live in our sonic uh, affective regime today in, well, in, in our time. So I would add that um, we knew that that music has been kind of intricately and intimately involved with issues of affect historically, uh, going back to the early Greeks. And we wanted to capture those historical differences, but in an effort to try and to contextualize the way people think about affect now is that you you can't you know sort of talk about affect now if you don't also have some kind of grasp of of how Plato thought about music and the way it affected people and how how uh, uh, Descartes thought about s- music and sound and through the the passions and the airy spirits right and then in in S- Steve's section about Hegel is how how affect uh, becomes a, a much different kind of phenomenon because of the change in philosophical context. And then the last one is just the, the move to sound studies, which, which has reoriented a lot of the way that people in music studies think about, about, about affect and also how philosophy then gets completely in, um, interwoven through that that thought press process. So it was trying to to say, well, we're there is this turn to affect now, but let's not forget about the the various ways that music and sound have been linked to this historically. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, no, I, I agree absolutely with everything Eduardo and, and Judy have said. Um, so I think you know when when you take or when you teach a class like oh, music 101 right in college um a lot of that class might say you know from this period to this period music sounded kind of like this and from this period to this period it sounded kind of like this and you have these more or less uh arbitrary cutoff dates for these different periods but those are meant to indicate that you know things do change and you have different sort of epochs in which um practices take certain forms um, you know, this can happen in a class on philosophy or a class on literature, too. Uh, we, we look at the ways that different regimes kind of shift across time, right? Um, and I think what we're trying to do in the introduction to some degree was to kind of think about these um, sonic effective regimes, you know, the, the term that Eduardo coins, and the ways that they shift through these different periods, the way that um, feeling uh, our ways of feeling our uh, our way through the world, of experiencing ourselves and our lives. Um, entire regimes of feelings shift, but they do so kind of in dialogue and in counterpoint. Um, 
with ways of hearing and ways of listening and ways of making sound and ways of making music. And, you know, trying to tell that entire story over a long period of time, of course, is way more than we can do in an introduction or in the whole book, but we're trying to kind of pick up pieces of it and put them together and, and start to see the outlines of a story um, in ways that I think are, are, are really intriguing. So, you know, uh, sound and affect voice music world towards a history of sonic effective regimes, right? Like it's, it's something that we can't accomplish here, but I think we've opened interesting doors. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, there were a lot of different definitions or like musings on what affect is throughout the book in the different essays. Do you all have your own theory of, of affect or do you agree or align most closely with one of these essays in the book? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will, I will say that one of the, one, I, I think it was, the, in some ways, the goal of that of the kind of summary of all the different ways people have thought about feeling, affect, and emotion is to point out that there is no one way that people think about affect, <laughs> and there's there's a lot of talk about it now and a lot of reference to it, but it can ref- refer to a whole range of different kinds of phenomena and it can have a whole bunch of different kinds of theoretical underpinnings for it. So, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I would personally <laughs> not want to say this is the, this is the one that I think is best because it's, you know, historically it's just been all over the map too. Clearly that is an indication that this is a central aspect of human experience that we have all these different ways of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I sometimes joke that classes can go really well when um, at the end of the class, we feel like we know less about a topic than we did at the beginning, you know? Um, so if a class is on like music and nature, <clears throat> we probably walk in thinking, Oh, I know what nature is. And then after 14 weeks, we've seen so many different ways that people have thought about it that, you know, we should walk out not being able to say confidently, I know for sure what nature is, right? And I thought that way sort of with this project. Um, there are so many ways people have thought about affect and about feeling in other senses too, you know, affect, emotion. Um, those are two of the big terms that we keep bumping into. I think we ended up using um, this notion of a family resemblance, right? So sometimes if you look at people within a family, um, there can be a strong sense of family resemblance, but it's no one thing that they share. You know, two people may have, uh, you know, foreheads that look similar. Two people in the same family may have ears that look similar. Um, and again, it's kind of like that with all these different, you know, formulations. They, they often have some things in common and some things very, very different from one another. Um, now, this is going, <laughs> having said that, um, I do think there's some consistency uh, in that, when people use the term affect rather than something like emotion, they tend to mean something um, relatively impersonal, um, relatively, you know, like undetermined by, say, my own super personal histories and experiences and identities, right? Um, Boy, I don't want to go too, too far beyond that, though, because then we start, you know, getting into the particularities of the different definitions. Does that sound right to you, Judy and Eduardo? 
Yeah, let me add to that. Um, so affect in um, theory has become an umbrella term to refer to a series of distinctions that have been very important in Western philosophy, beginning with Aristotle, namely the distinctions be, uh, among feeling, emotion, passion. And, and so affect is supposed to capture uh, something that we feel, something that creates an emotion, and something about which we're passionate. And, and so we wanted to capture that interaction because when, when, when we feel something, we are being affected. When we have an emotion, we affect the world. And when we have a passion, we affect ourselves and we affect the world. And so affect is a beautiful term to capture these uh, uh, trilectic uh, or dimension dialectic between being in the world in interaction with others um, and ourselves. And affect also has to do with the fact that when we think, we literally create emotions in our bodies. When we hear something, um, we are being affected and we let ourselves feel an emotion and then we may have a passion. And so we were trying to capture all of that. Mm. So I was hoping we actually could go into some of the specifics of definitions of affect in the book. Firstly, being Gary Tomlinson's chapter. Tomlinson? Tomlinson? Tomlinson. Tomlinson, yes. I was very taken with his idea of biosemiotic, the, the biosemiotic approach and that's relation to Purse's thirdness. I was wondering yeah. if one of you could talk a little bit about that. I defer to my colleagues. <laughs> I, Steve is probably most acquainted with, with that. So. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> it's a big um, straw, sprawling essay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also part of a, a much bigger project of Gary Tomlinson's. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, he has other um, uh, publications working in this project since uh, since its beginning. But the big book that kind of um, opened this line of his work is A, a Million Years of Music, uh, The Emergence of Human Modernity, which is from 2015, I think. And um, what... Uh, Tomlinson is doing in that project is um, uh, thinking through um, evidence from paleontology, anthropology, um, cognitive science, um, working with that material by way of a lot of humanistic discourse, philosophy, theory, and thinking through what it means to ask about where human um, musical practices um, can be said to come from in a very, very long evolutionary uh, time scale, right? Um, it's an incredibly rich project. Uh, one of his key arguments is that um, if we want to think about where music comes from evolutionarily, we can't look for just one thing, right? We're not going to find like a music gene or one uh, evolutionary evolutionary adaptation in uh, a, uh, an ancestor 
that then led to the sudden emergence of music, right? He says that music is really, or musicking uh, is the term he uses, is a whole bundle of practices and capacities that are going to have different evolutionary histories. Um, they are going to emerge from different uh, adaptations in different contexts. So he'll devote some time to thinking about um, just the ability to entrain, right? To kind of match a beat uh, that someone else is making. And he makes the point that this is pretty unusual of animals. And he thinks that we can trace it all the way back to our, um, you know, pre-human primate ancestors learning how to make chipped stone tools from one another just by watching and imitating. They're, they're not learning a kind of mental blueprint uh, uh, that will then be a sort of model for future action. They're just learning how to mimic each other's movements, and that entails a kind of rhythmic entraining, right, with the chipping of the of the stone. So it, it's that sort of really deep exploration, um, that sort of kind of speculative project informed by lots and lots of uh, research in lots of different fields. So that's the kind of context for the argument in that essay, where he's asking about um, how we can think of affect as something that isn't only going to emerge in, you know, musical practices in 2022 where we listen to a certain song because it makes us feel a certain way, but it's going to have these very deep roots having to do with um, the way that um, every single organism has to have some feeling relationship with its environment, not just sort of physical contact, but, um, you know, uh, sensations, um, intensities of experience, right? And uh, he's working with this body of theory that's arguing that something like meaning um, isn't only limited to uh, we humans, again, in 2022, who can talk to one another over over the internet, um, but has to be thought of as already at work in every single life process we can imagine, all the way down to the simplest of the simplest of uh, organisms, the sort of most rudimentary living things. So there's a kind of um, affective experience and a kind of semiosis, a kind of meaning-making already at work as soon as you have any kind of life. And he's asking what it means to think about experiences of uh, relationships between music and sound and affect, beginning with that kind of historical perspective and that sort of... um, situatedness in life processes uh, rather than just by way of sort of like historical regimes of meaning or significance, right? Um, The kind of thing that we have uh, in our Spotify playlists, right? You know, these are the tunes to make me get ready to go to the gym or whatever, right? Right. That was a great answer to a very broad question. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I would add one, one, one little thing is that, I mean, some of his perspective on this is the very long historical perspective about the way uh, people, uh, humans have become musical in the way that they are now has, has a lot to do with some of the early work he did uh, in that Renaissance period where, uh, where people believed that, that, you know, our passions were physical substances in our bodies and they would be moved 
through these, this kind of vibratory interaction, which is affect in, in another uh, kind of conception. And I think, uh, you know, he's since that, that was his earlier work. And since then, he's sort of developed from, from that particular project to look more broadly at the way, uh, you know, as we've been trying to point out that there are different historical periods where people embody affect in much different ways. And, and he's sort of interested in, in, in exploring that, that significance. So this idea of the biosemiotics, right? That the way we listen to music now is a, has to have been different or musics, you know, or the way we make music um, is going to be different than in earlier periods just because of the constellation of, of um, technologies and, and ways of interacting with one another that have changed over time. Something I found really convincing that he said about affect was that it's not, it's not that it's just like something inherent or pre, pre-human even, maybe it is, but whatever is, whatever is like, I guess, deeper than emotion is also susceptible to being co-produced and co-producing reality along with it. And I, I found that to be a really interesting trend in this book in general, and one that related to the essay by Michael Quintero and also the one by Christoph Howarth's Howarth chapters about significant the significance is making and also being made at the same time so relating that to like how the individual is constructed by the music that they're streaming and then the way that streaming platforms are also constructing the individual um an identity being constructed like by the capitalist framework that we're in and also being and also constructing I, I lost my train of thought there, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I was curious to see the way that, that like your perspective on that materialist take. If, if I may, um, Tomlinson's chapter for me was really interesting, but also, um, a bit, uh, naturalistic. I don't know if I can use that word on mm. online, meaning, <laughs> That, that um, he was trying to say that, that this ingrained anthropogenic factors. Um, and, and I love the chapter, and we actually had a lot of issues with it. We, we went back and forth. Um, but ultimately, it's a very important chapter because it means we became humans by making music that we were making for ourselves, but also music to tame animals and we made music that we thought animals were making. And that's what I love that, about that chapter. It's this, um, as Steve just explained, this uh, long, um, a deep history of how we're creatures of sound and not just to listening to each other, but to birds, horses, dogs, um, and so we co-evolve with other species by making sounds that were like their sounds, 
and then they learn to hear our voices or, or our sounds. So I love that chapter. Um, now, my objection to the chapter, and, and mind you, um, it is in the book, <laughs> is that um, it, 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 it forgets um, the history of sound making. Um, at first, we were uh, chopping rocks, then we made drums, then we created sophisticated sound instruments, um, and so on and so forth until we get to uh, the 21st century where we get Brian Eno making sounds um, out of nothing. Um, and so um, I get woken up by my birds and um, that, that's a powerful <laughs> waking up and by my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the birds are pretty intense this time of year. It's it's actually a glorious thing to have your window open and they just kind of this dawn chorus of exactly. Of birds, it's a, you know. it's a symphony. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know, to to maybe address Francis's uh, question about the material aspects, I, I I would probably almost all the essays in some way uh, take up that materialist. Uh, co-creation uh, feature. And I think that's, you know, it's one of the, if I can be so bold to say it, it's, it is a pretty thematic idea now in intellectual circles is, is, you know, now that we have to deal with the Anthropocene and we're, we're worried about how humans are affecting the world, not just, you know, uh, those kinds of things. And so I think most of the essays uh, take up that topic in in quite different kinds of ways, but but they're certainly but they focus it on on sound and music. Right. I, I just want to underscore what Judith just said. Um, the essay by uh, Don Ivy is particularly important in this regard that we have flooded literally the planet with sound, and so we can talk uh, about an anthropo. I don't know what what the um, sound. Um, <laughs> it's called noise. Stephen, help me here. What what is it that? Uh, I mean, the great insight of Ivy's contribution to this volume is that we flooded the planet with our sound, not only, uh, but also from the stratosphere. Um, Anthropo sound, anthropo shoot, rhythm, I don't know. Yeah, anthropo scene or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if I could just uh, echo my colleagues a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I, I, I think this bears upon your question, Francis. Um, so just one fascinating thing about Tomlinson's project, and, and um, uh, Eduardo reminded me of this, is that it begins um, telling a history of music before there was music, per se, because it's also before there were humans, right? And so um, the the capacities um, that he's sort of telling these, uh, narrating these histories of, um, not only predate you know modern humanity, but are part of the creation of modern humanity. So, it's not necessarily a story of you know, for example, how humans learned to use tools, but of how the use of tools created humans, 
right, drove the evolutionary processes that created modern humans. And so all of these, you know, sonic effective relationships among, um, among pre-human um, uh, primates um, and uh, among those, those beings and their environments, right? Those um, predate the modern human and also are a huge part of the emergence of the modern human. Um, and a sort of, um, you know, a, a weirdly almost uh, 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 similar looking structure, but with a very, very different kind of uh, time scale keeps reemerging in the book. The sort of difference between um, affect on the level of the pre-personal and affect on the level of the, the um, individualized person, right? Um, so a lot, one thing that I thought showed up a lot through this book uh, was um, a kind of critical stance towards some affect theory that's out there uh, that, you know, uh, emerged in sort of previous generations of work or iterations of work, maybe. Um, so some of that theory praises uh, affect as something that it regards as somehow outside of, um, you know, fully articulated regimes of meaning and identity and sort of for that reason, outside of certain regimes of power or even capital, something like that, right? So, you know, the person that I know myself to be, the ways I can narrate my identity to myself, the ways that I can make sense of my feelings to myself, all of those are caught up in um, heteronormative, uh, patriarchal capitalism, right, with colonial histories, with regimes of power that are constantly reiterated, but maybe there's a realm of feeling, right, that isn't fully translated into a world dominated by those power structures. And I can sort of affirm that realm of feeling and maybe start to kind of experience life outside of this world of of power and so on. And it's a really powerful and kind of beautiful thought. Um, I thought that a lot of the authors in this volume engaged with it with a kind of caution and ambivalence, right? a lot of people wanted to say maybe there is something to that, but we also need to be attentive to the ways that affect is drawn into these regimes of power too, right? Um, affect is part of modern capitalism in you know countless ways, right? Our affects are produced and managed and harvested in all kinds of ways, right? So I thought there was this really kind of um, lovely tension right, in the way that a lot of our, our authors responded to those theories. Definitely. I really agree. So how, how do you think, how literal is the relationship between music and affect? Like in the forward, I, uh, the forward that you guys wrote, I kind of got the sense that it was like different affects or different musics are informed by different time periods and different historical events. And then those types of music in turn are affecting affect or like are, are kind of informing the way that we are going to experience either different intensities or emotions. How much of a connection is there between what's happening outside in the world and the way that music sounds and the way that music affects us? 
Hmm, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think that that is thematic is that that we can't know exactly. Let's let's take the 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 17th and 18th century, right? Um, where there was this discussion about the passions and 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 this there was a developed uh, notion of affect, Lehre, in in Germany, right? Uh, and so there was an attempt to sort of make a, a kind of uh, explicit connection between certain kinds of musical phenomena and per- particular kinds of effective um, responses. Um, and, you know, they didn't go anywhere because it's kind of hard to do that, right? That you can theorize it, but you can't necessarily control for it because because listening is 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 an activity that's free. Uh, it, it's the music is not dictating that you hear in a particular way that you will have a particular uh, response to it. But there are social structures and social constructs that will 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 suggest that we hear things in a certain way, right? So um, you know we don't know exactly how people were listening and and hearing music in the seventeenth and eighteenth century. We kind of know what they say, and we know what it sounds like now. And we know how people respond to it now um, because we can converse about it, even though, you know, people still don't talk that much about how they hear music, right? They, they might say, I like it or, you know, but they don't go into a lot of detail um, because we don't really have um, a vocabulary and probably never will have a vocabulary to, to capture that. Um, so, yes, there, there are differences, uh, but we have limits about how much we can actually know about those differences because sound is ephemeral, right? And, and people's responses are free, and, but you still have some intentionality about, about you know, creating certain kinds of, of sounds that are, are uh, responsive to the needs of a particular society at a particular time, right? So, the, you know, Eduardo brought up uh, Brian Eno. Brian Eno wrote a particular kind of music that speaks very much to the late 20th century um, in, in the way that it addresses sound and, and, in a certain sense, our saturation with sound. You know, he created these kind of soundscape-type pieces that, that were kind of a wash of sound, right, and completely different than what Mozart would have written in the 18th century, right? Because there's different social um, contexts in which those social, technological, and musical contexts in which those things are created, they all have affect. Hey, Francis, do we have time for me to add something here? Yes, please do. Um, I I love uh, Stevenson and Judith's uh, answer to this. Um, I, I think. Um, I, I, I will refer to two of my teachers, one of them literally a teacher and the other one a philosophical teacher, Amir Baraka and James Cohn, who wrote books on the blues and then the blues and the spirituals. And of course, um, Angela Davis on, um, you know, women in jazz and, and the blues. And, um, you know, uh, it, it I, we were writing this um, as we were undergoing the slammer edge of the Trump generation, the Trump administration. 
and all of the uh, yells and loud uh, rallies of the white supremacists, racist, anti-feminist. And, you know, there's a, there's a relationship between the kinds of things you listen to and you're affected by and the kinds of things you want to listen to to remind you who you are. And, and so I, I think that's one of the things that we wanted to um, sort of highlight uh, in the foreword that you're affected by music, but you also are an active participant. This is why we have in philosophy this distinction between feeling, emotion, and passion. And, and then we bring them together on the term affect. Um, you're affected, but then you also let yourself be affected. And one, one thing is to listen to a blues song, and another thing is to listen to, uh, I don't know, a white supremacist song um, that is played out loud in the uh, speakers of the insurrectionists of January 6th. And uh, I, I have to tell you, I cannot listen to whatever they were playing because I will associate it. And that means me being affected in a certain way um, with a certain kind of being a human being in the world that would not listen to others. So, so we were trying to capture that interaction between being affected and letting oneself be affected in order to be a social agent which is what uh, affect theory and sound theory and music theory are about, is that we are shaped by the sound towers that we live in, but we also can decide to leave that tower. Do you want to add anything, Steve? Oh, boy. I did. Eduardo, that was very beautiful. <laughs> I'm reluctant to say anything after it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, just just echoing Eduardo and, and Judy, I mean, one, one thing um, I, I was thinking about was, um, it was sort of similar to what Eduardo was just saying, you know, we're thinking about sound and we're thinking about music and we're thinking about feeling, um, you know, what, what sorts of sound worlds do we do we live in? Um, you know, we often have uh, some control over those sound worlds i can stand side or go onto the street the world sounds differently depending upon what i do there i can turn the air conditioner on or off in some ways we don't have control over those sound worlds um and i think the you know the examples of something like january 6 is an incredible you know incredibly vivid uh, uh uh example of something that you know well i can choose to what degree i want to hear it but it's hard not to know that it's out there it's not hard it's hard not to hear it sooner or later um when i think about music music is a kind of art right and that's a slightly different thing because it's it's made it's not just sort of uh encountered um and you know we can ask you know what what is it meant to do when a piece of music you know builds a relationship with the the sounds of the world that it emerges from and the sort of uh uh, uh affects or feelings that are sort of flowing through that world is it meant to sort of capture them and um 
put a frame around them and let us see them and maybe have a little distance from them and look at it and say, yes, that is what the world is like, or maybe that's what the world's like. And I feel a little better for being able to say that now, or is it meant to introduce something totally new into the world that can kind of give us a sense that things might be different than they, than they are now we can hear something, possibly feel something that, you know, we didn't know we could hear or feel before. Um, and I feel like a lot of the work that we're gathering in this volume sits um, in a sort of difficult space among those questions, right? Um, are we are we are we echoing the world back, or are we sort of creating sounds that haven't been in the world before, and, and maybe trying to intervene in it? Then? Those were great answers. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I really appreciated uh, you being here, and I also loved the book so much, and I encourage everyone to grab a copy. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francis.